Well, in my humble opinion, New Zealand has the best national anthem in the world. God defend New Zealand. It's a great song. By the way, if you haven't listened to all and read the words, all five stanzas, number five is my favorite, by the way. And it certainly is true, God has defended New Zealand and has given us great blessings. We had great start if you know New Zealand history and you haven't been sucked in by the rewriting of New Zealand's history yet, which is coming. They're working on it. Uh, I've had I've had a privilege of reading about New Zealand's Christian history. It's wonderful to read that. I encourage you to do so. But because New Zealand as a whole, though, has rebelled against God, uh, I, I have great concerns. I, I actually fear that God's wrath is being unleashed upon us. And so, as a preacher of the Word, a messenger of God, I, I, I have a message for our Prime Minister and every Minister of Parliament today. They'll probably never listen to this, but anyway, my, my message is that our nation has turned its back on God. And we are in rebellion against this holy God, and we must forsake and repent of our sin or God's judgment will fall. It will. And if anybody's wondering, well, why, why would God's judgment fall on a nation like New Zealand? Well, let me just give you a few reasons to think about. Number one is abortion. So we rip babies from the womb at the rate of approximately 13,000 human beings a year, every year. That's New Zealand statistics. That's the ones we know about. So you can look it up on the Internet. In 2018, it was over 13,000 deaths. Another reason why God's judgment is falling is because of euthanasia. Right In our last election, 65% of New Zealanders voted in favor of helping people die. So we rip babies out of the womb at birth, we kill them in their old age, and the third reason is we drug everybody else who's still alive, right? You know, you know our government's going to pass drugs, make it totally illegal. It's, hap- it's going to happen. They said it's going to happen. I mean, why, why not? Why not drug everybody who's still left alive? I mean, wh- what reason is there to live for? What purpose do we have for living? I mean, we've got like the worst suicide rate in the world for some of us. In, 20, in the year 2013, another sad thing happened is we tried to redefine God's definition of marriage, right? Which no government in the world has the right to do that, but they, they tried to make it legal for same-sex couples to get married. And what we need to understand is according to Romans chapter 1, uh, and, and what, what you see, by the way, happening today is Romans chapter 1 is being lived out in our presence, right? What did God say is going to happen? When you rebel against Him, He's going to turn you over to your reprobate mind. So what you see is the insanity is being lived out in our culture. And it is insane, by the way, to rebel against God. I hope you understand that. Total insanity. And so God says, okay, that's what you want? Reap the consequences of your sin. 
and, and that's what's happening. And so such are the arrogant attempts of anybody to overthrow the sovereign rule of God. And, and by the way, this cosmic revolt is nothing new. It, it happened in Genesis 3, right? A long, long time ago in the Garden of Eden when our father Adam decided that he was going to rise up against the supreme authority of God. And, and since then, the human race has gained momentum in its conspiracy to revolt against God. And this chapter here, Psalm chapter 2, by the way, the New Testament tells you the human author is David, even though the title doesn't mention it. But, but Psalm 2 portrays for us this ongoing cosmic rebellion of our lost world against God the Father and God the Son. Uh, now, the, the, the Psalm 2 is broken up into four stanzas in Hebrew. So just, in, in the, if you have an outline, by the way, there's more outlines sitting here if you need one. So raise your hand if you need one. Uh, they're right there. So did you want one? So pass one back. So just, just follow along in your Bible as I read from Psalm chapter 2, and you'll see the outline is divided up into these four stanzas. So Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, Yahweh said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, prime ministers, ministers of parliament, city councilors, you could add in there. Here's what God says to you. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So the proposition from Psalm chapter 2 here today for you, and anybody who has ears to listen, is this, that God wants you to embrace His Son now before His wrath is unleashed. So the first stanza tells us about God's predicament. God has a predicament and I don't mean that he's in trouble. I don't mean it that way. Okay. <laughs> he's certainly not in trouble. He's not surprised by what's going on here. But what do, what do we see going on here? Well, number one is that there's this global rebellion against God. There's a global rebellion against God. And, and the psalmist is asking the question, I mean, this is insanity. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot? Why? That's insane. By the way, just take note to put those phrases together there in in verse 1. What do we have? We have people who are enraged plotters. (laughs) 
they're enraged plotters. But notice the Bible describes their rage as something that is in vain. In other words, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's pointless. I mean, think about it. Why, Why is that? Well, because the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, promised that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And throughout human history, people have been revolting against God. Like I said, it started way back with our first father, Adam. And it's been going on. Let me give you a few examples from the Bible. Uh, The first one that comes to my mind here, you can turn over to Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus 14, God sends his messenger Moses to talk to the king of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth. Planet Earth at the time was Egypt. Pharaoh was a very powerful man. And so God sends his messenger to tell Egypt, let my people Israel go. Free them from their slavery. Do do the Egyptians listen to God? No. (laughs) So what does God do? God sends ten plagues, as you can see on the screen. He sends ten plagues to humble the most powerful nation on earth. They had no answer for any of these plagues. And by the way, every single one of them was attacking one of the Egyptian false gods. Eventually, eventually they succumb to God's judgments, and they, they actually drive Israel out. They give them heaps of money. Go, please, get out of here before, <laughs> before we all perish. And and as they're leaving Egypt and on their way to the promised land, they come to an apparent impasse. If you look at Exodus chapter 14, they come to the Red Sea. Seas don't stop God. God opens the way. Look what Exodus 14 verse 22 says. Here's what God did. Exodus 14, 22. Well, let's start in verse 21. It says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back like a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, And in the morning watch, Yahweh, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea turned, or returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, no one of them remained. Of course, Israel was safe. God protected them. Another example of we see the insanity of this cosmic revolt against God is is in the book of Isaiah. 
turn over to Isaiah chapter 37. In this case, you have King Sennacherib, the, the king of the Assyrian Empire, has come against God's holy city, Jerusalem. What a fool. What a fool. He's revolting against God. He's doing his thing. He thinks he's in charge. Look what God does. Isaiah 37, verse 36. Verse 36. And the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000, that's the soldiers, in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramalek and Shemizar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. There you go. <laughs> That's how God deals with people who are in revolt against him. Another example we see in the Bible is over in Daniel chapter 4. Look at Daniel chapter 4. You'll see a picture on the screen here of one of the most powerful people in the world at the time was King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's mentioned here in Daniel chapter 4. The Bible says one day King Nebuchadnezzar is looking over the great city of Babylon and pride arose up within his heart. Look what he says here. And look what God does to those who rise up against God. Daniel 4, verse 28. Verse 28. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. <laughs> Seven years he lived like an animal. And you probably know the end of the story if you, if you move on to the next chapters. You find eventually the Persian Empire rises up and God uses them to come in to the gates of Babylon and destroy Babylon. And eventually, as we go through the Bible, there's another empire that arises called the Roman Empire, which was around during Jesus' day. And it's very interesting, uh, in uh, Charles, uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon's commentary on Psalms, he had this to say about some of the Caesars and leaders of the Roman Empire. I, I, I'm quoting him on the screen here. He says, Of the of, of 30 Roman emperors and governors of provinces and others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, 
One became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in a miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that will not bear recital. One died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it, but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths. And several of them having an untold complication of diseases. And eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoners. End quote. There you go. Who's in charge? God is sovereign. He will not tolerate this cosmic rebellion against Him. And the last one that needs to be mentioned is in the last book of your Bible. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. The Antichrist himself is going to be dealt with one day. And if you read the entire book of Revelation, you will notice something about it. Most of the book is about these these judgments. There's 21 judgments uh, mentioned in, in the book of Revelation, culminating in the last seven judgments called the seven bull judgments. And just have a look here in Revelation 19, what happens? <laughs> because Antichrist and his kingdom ruling the world during the seven-year tribulation is 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 not enough. I mean, the Bible says they refuse to repent. They refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus. So here's what happens. We go through the seven years and they still haven't repented. And we come to Revelation 19, verse 11. Verse 11, look at this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence had done those signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him 
who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. There you go. There's, there's some great biblical examples of what happens in this great cosmic revolt against God. They think they're in charge, but they're not. So I have a question for you to consider. Have you resisted God's rule over your life? Have you resisted God's rule over your life? Maybe not on the whole, but there's probably times in our lives where we have. And, and we, could, we could maybe uh, ask the question ourselves right there in Psalm 2, verse 1. We're raging, we're plotting against the Sovereign One. You can turn back to Psalm 2. I just want you to notice in Psalm 2 who is leading the resistance against Almighty God. Because verse 2 says the world leaders are taking a stand against Yahweh. The world leaders are taking a stand against Yahweh. And notice two things here. Well, notice a couple things. Notice that their opposition is deliberate and it's political. We see these kings of the earth, the world leaders, have set themselves. They, they are taking a deliberate stand and they're working together. Because notice they're taking counsel, it says. Taking counsel together. You say, well, who are they opposed to? Well, notice the text says they're fighting against the Lord. Now, whenever you see all capital letters in your Bible, like that word Lord there, it is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's referring to God, Yahweh. And when it mentions also against His anointed, so you're not only fighting Yahweh, you're fighting, you're fighting Yahweh's anointed one. Uh, so, so there, that's referring to, that is the word Messiah. The Hebrew word Messiah, which in Greek, you come to your New Testament, the Greek equivalent is Christ. Christ. So these world leaders are fighting against Yahweh and Jesus Christ. And by the way, that means that God's people Israel can expect opposition. Is it any wonder that probably the most hated nation on earth is Israel? God's people. And then you come to your New Testament, and of course you find that, that Christ's own bride. And Christianity has been the, the most attacked throughout human history. And so it, it's very important that we, we, we watch out and we're careful with these, these globalist groups in particular. Globalist groups do not love God's people, whether if we're talking about Israel or the Christians. So, so groups like the United Nations or the World Economic Forum or these world bankers, just to name a few, they, they are against Yahweh and His anointed Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They hate Him. They hate His purposes. They hate His people. And so this is God's predicament here, but it gets um, even worse. In verse 3 it says here that the rebellious people, are not only do they hate Yahweh and the Messiah, they're really arrogant. Because look what it says. These rebellious people are speaking arrogantly against God. I want you to notice in verse 3 that, that these rebels are united. They are united in one voice. And what are they saying? Well, they're actually expressing 
their desire to be free of God's control. They hate God. They hate His government. They don't want God to be their king. And so what do they say in verse 3? Let us burst our bonds apart. Cast away those cords. Any constraint that God might put upon us, just get rid of it. Let's be free. Free of God's reign and rule and sovereignty. Well, that's the predicament God is in. So how does He respond to such arrogance and pride? God runs and hides, doesn't He? Oh no! I didn't see that coming. What do I do now? No, that's not what He does, right? <laughs> what, how does God respond in verses 4-6 through six in the second stanza? The first thing He does in verse 4, is that God laughs at His enemies. He laughs at His enemies. As far as I know, this is the only time the Bible mentions God laughing. God obviously has a sense of humor. But notice, my friends, that this laugh of God is... It's not a laugh because He thinks it's funny. This is a laugh of... As the Bible says, it's a laugh of derision. God is laughing in contempt here. He is mocking the insanity of this rebellion. <laughs> so it's not a laughter of hilarity. He holds them in derision, it says in the text. And so these rebels, they, they're boldly shaking their fist in God's face. But such an attempt, such an attempted takeover is actually something that's really bizarre. When you think about it. In fact, it's insane because Yahweh scoffs at them. He ridicules them. He's mocking their puny efforts, just like he did at the Tower of Babel. <laughs> You're trying to make this huge tower to me. And it's funny how the Bible says God has to come down to their level <laughs> and disperse them. So he laughs at his enemies. And then, in verse 5, we see that God will terrify his enemies. He will terrify them. He's going to speak to them in wrath and terrify them in His fury. So God's absolute holiness here moves Him to judge sinners. He's not going to let them get away with this. And so notice as He speaks, He terrifies them in His wrath. People talk a lot about God is love. And John does say that. The book of John says, yes, God is love, but He's more than just love. And so what does He do here? He speaks words of burning indignation. It's important that we not forget, friends, that the Bible says that God hates evildoers, and He is angry with the wicked every day. You say, where is that in the Bible? Well, it's, it's in the, previous, or the, the coming chapters of Psalms. Look at this. Psalm 5, verse 5. It says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 7.11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. That's how God feels. God has emotions. He's not going to tolerate it. So He's going to terrify His enemies. And then number three, we see here, how does God respond to this cosmic rebellion? He, he says here, well, he's not gonna, he's not gonna allow those kings of the earth to get away with it forever. And we see in verse six that God will enthrone the Messiah. 
He will enthrone the Messiah. He, he has His own King. He has His own King. God's chosen King, of course, here is His own Son, Jesus Christ. And notice the text even tells us where Christ will reign. Notice it says Zion. Zion is a reference, by the way, to the city of Jerusalem. God's holy city. By the way, this is referring to both the earthly as well as the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And so, notice within Zion there is a holy hill, it mentions. So within Jerusalem there's a holy hill. We all know about it. It makes it on the news all the time. And within Zion is that holy hill, which is a very specific location called the Temple Mount. The earthly temple area right there in Jerusalem is what the Bible is talking about. As well as referring to, of course, the the very throne room in heaven. And so that, that statement there, verse 6, speaks first to the present enthronement of Christ at the right hand of God, which, of course, followed the ascension of Jesus Christ, which bestowed upon Him the highest place of authority. He earned it. And then ultimately, these words we see here are anticipating the return of Christ to earth, the the glorious appearing and and reign during the 1,000-year reign of Christ from the city of Jerusalem. God's not done with Jerusalem. So my friends, think about this. Here's a question for you to ponder and think about. Is God's sovereignty a comfort to you as you live in a chaotic world certainly is to me. We live in a chaotic world. We live in a in an insane world. They've gone nuts because God has turned them over to their own reprobate minds. Following your heart is not a good path. And so I find great comfort in, in God's rule and His total control over His creation. And so should you. The third stanza here shows us God's purpose. God has a purpose. And so as the third stanza now begins here, the speaker shifts yet again. And and this time, the Messiah, Jesus himself, speaks. What do we learn? What do we learn? Well, we learn some really important things here. Number one, Messiah will rule the nations. That's what we see in verse 7, that Messiah, that's Christ, will rule the nations. And so all that God the Father has planned and and purposed way back in eternity past, the Son will proclaim and He's going to perform in time and He's going to do it through human history. And so in that eternal council, God the Father spoke to God the Son. What did He say? It says right here, you know at least something that they said together to each other. It says, you are my son. Well, that passage has led to some disagreement, even amongst good people. But let let me just say this. This passage does not suggest that the second member of the Godhead is a created being. Just because it says he is a son doesn't make him a created being. In fact... Let's use Scripture here to help interpret Scripture. Uh, this passage here, that, in fact, that very phrase, points to two things, two important things about Jesus. It shows His incarnation, and it shows something about His resurrection. 
And I'm saying that based on two other passages in the New Testament that use Psalm chapter 2. Let me just show them to you. One of them is found in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews 1, the book of Hebrews actually connects that phrase to Christ incarnation. Now, now incarnation is a big, big theological word. You see the word carn, carne, in that carnal, fleshly, Jesus becoming flesh. And look how the book of Hebrews is helping to interpret what this means. Because he uses that phrase. Hebrews 1 verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of course, Hebrews is showing the superiority of Christ. So this one who is called Son is superior. He is not a created being. Yes, He is God the Son. And He is worthy to rule the nations. Now look how the Apostle Paul connects Psalm chapter 2 to Christ's resurrection in Acts 13 verse 33. Here's what it says. This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So you just saw him talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Notice that connection to that phrase, You are the son. And so, he is worthy of this authority. He will rule the nations. And so, that that leads into verse 7, because the the fulfillment of verse 7 occurred here in Christ's incarnation, and then that became the basis of the Father's statement here in verse 8. Because in verse 8, we learn that the Messiah will then inherit the nations. He will inherit... The nations, verse 8 says, because notice it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. So because of of Christ's submission to the Father's will, God's going to bestow a rich legacy upon His Son. And you say, well, what legacy? What, What is this legacy? What is it? It's a vast inheritance that is now being progressively realized and and one day is going to be fully transferred to Christ, you say, when's that going to happen? It's going to happen during the millennial reign of Christ. One day Christ is going to receive His inheritance. All of it. Notice the Father is going to give the Son. What is He going to give Him? It says. He's going to give Him, at the end of verse 8, the ends of the earth as his possession. In other words, that's his inheritance. And, and, and that is, it's coming from all the nations of the earth. There's this large group of people who come to Christ and become his own possession. His sheep. The ones who hear his voice and follow him are his possession. So Christ will inherit the nations. And then third, we see that, that the Messiah will judge the nations. 
He will judge the nations. He's going to break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so the son's reign here is total supremacy, total supreme. In fact, his reign is so supreme, notice the comparison. It's compared to a potter taking a a piece of pottery, grabbing a rod of iron, and smashing that pottery to pieces. He's going to dash them to pieces. In other words, the idea here is that Christ is going to consign the unbelievers to hell forever. And look how the book of Revelation uses that very verse, by the way. The book of Revelation uses that very phrase in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod. Revelation 19, verse 15 has this to say. It says that from Christ's mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And we've seen a lot of bad news in this chapter, and some people want some hope. They're like, please, give me some good news. Give me some hope. There is hope. Always hope in the Bible. Hopefully you've heard me say this many, many times, and you understand that when you see God's judgment fall, Always look for His grace. Always look for His grace. Yes, judgment will come, but there is grace. There is hope. Until you go to the lake of fire, there is hope. And so look at five commands in this text. In the Hebrew text, there's five commands in verses 10 through 12. So the identity here in stands in under number four, by the way, it isn't mentioned, but it's not revealed to us, at least in the text, but it's probably the voice of the Holy Spirit here. And he's speaking through David. And you say, well, how do you know it's David? Well, read your New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. It, it tells you Psalm 2 was written by David. But notice the Spirit's invitation here to the, these rebellious sinners who are at enmity with God The first thing that God tells them in in verse 10 is be wise. Be wise. And he says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. That's a command in Hebrew, not an option. In other words, God wants his enemies to think carefully. Now, why would he want them to do that? Because they're in trouble (laughs) if they don't change. Right? It, it is insane to fight against the Almighty God. They need to be wise or they got serious consequences coming. And then the second thing God tells them is be warned. God wants His enemies to cease from their long war with Him. Cease in this war. Yes, my friends, God is long-suffering and merciful. But the Bible also says God is holy and just. And sinners will not get away with their sin forever. So be warned, he says. The third command is serve Yahweh. You see that in verse 11. Serve Yahweh. And notice it's not just serve Yahweh. It's serve Yahweh with fear. Serve Him with fear. So instead of resisting God, sinners here must turn from their sinful ways and serve Yahweh. Don't worship themselves. But serve Yahweh. How? With fear. <laughs> fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. And so they, they have then to hear to, 
to realign themselves with God. They've been in rebellion against Him, so there needs to be a total, total change of mind in regard to their sin. No longer should they serve themselves. They need to yield their service to God. And of course, that involves then a changed heart. They're not, they're not going to do this with a rebellious heart. But their heart needs to be changed. And they need to be filled with the fear of awe and a reverence for God. They need to see Him as He really is. Believe Him for who He is. And, and then it, if they do that, then, then, they, then they'll be able to do the next part of verse 11, to rejoice with trembling. See, it's not enough to just serve Yahweh. God wants to be worshipped. He is worthy of this worship. They need to find their greatest pleasure in God Himself. That's kind of the idea of this rejoicing. If you're rejoicing and you're grateful and giving thanks to God, then you're worshiping God. You're, you're finding your delight in Him. He is worthy of this awe and this fear. And then there's, there's another interesting phrase in your Bible. It's in the figurative language here. And the command is, kiss the Son. That's why I asked you, have you kissed the Son? Have you? Have you kissed the Son? That's a command. And for centuries, by the way, this idea of kissing in this context here uh, had the, the sign of humble submission to any ruler. It was quite common. You come into a ruler's presence and you had to bow down kiss the ruler's feet. Or if it wasn't their feet, they might hold out their hand and you had to kiss the ruler's hand. Why, why would you do such a thing? That's, kind of, that's not normal these days. Well, that was an act of submission to that ruler. And, and so in this case, King Jesus is the sovereign king here whom we must be subject to. You say, do I have to? Do I have to be subject to the Son? Yes, you do, because loving devotion here and loyal allegiance to Christ are required. This is a command, not an option. And you say, well, why do I have to do that? Well, look at the result in verse 12. If you don't, if you don't submit to King Jesus, the Bible says that Christ will be angry and you will perish. So the choice is clear, isn't it? So my friend, it, it is better to willingly bend the knee than for your knees to be broken, right? If you don't willingly bend the knee, He's going to break them. And Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow to King Jesus one day. Far better to do it willingly. So God's call here is for sinners to pay homage to King Jesus. And it is a very urgent call. Because His wrath can flare up at any moment. <laughs> so while there's opportunity to do so, God's saying, repent, forsake, come to Me. Sinners must turn from their wicked ways and embrace God's Son by faith. You say, oh, okay, if I do that, what's going to happen? If, if sinners embrace Christ, what happens? Well, there's really good news in verse 12. Because it says, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. 
And, and so even though technically that last part of verse 12 is not a command, it's an outworking of these commands. And the idea is take refuge in Christ. Take refuge in Christ. So the idea is you take refuge in Christ. That is synonymous with having saving faith. You're, you're putting faith in the only one who can save you. And so Christ is the only protection from God's wrath. Every person on planet earth needs to be saved from God Himself. <laughs> he is the one who is who you need to fear. And so sinners must kiss the Son today while they still can, because after the wrath is unleashed, there's no hope. So I ask you, my friends, have you embraced God's Son? Are you continually embracing God's Son? Are you a passionate follower of Jesus Christ? Never release your embrace. Don't ever let go. He is your only hope. Well, as I end, it's interesting that uh, the, the Roman Empire was very arrogant, very condescending toward God, hated the Christians. Uh, you read your church history, it's a lot of bad news. Most of the apostles were slain by the Roman Empire over the years, except for the Apostle John. They tried to kill him by burning him in oil. That didn't work, and so we'll just exile the Apostle John on the island of Patmos until he dies. So uh, they, they were not kind to the Christians. And as you read into church history, eventually coming to the 300s, it's interesting that ascending to the throne as Caesar of Rome in the year 360, there was a guy named Flavius Julianus who reinstated pagan worship, which had been abolished under the rule of Constantine. And so he set, he set himself against this uh, his job with just diabolical fury. He opposed the followers of Jesus Christ whom he viewed, by the way, as powerful enemies of his false gods. So with fanatical resolve, he sought to remove Christianity from the face of the earth. History records that Julianus did persecute Christians. He took the lives of many Christians who stood for their faith in Christ. So in an attempt to entertain some of his friends one day, Julianus taunted one particular believer named Agaton. And so with many Christians being put to death, the emperor asked Agaton, how is your carpenter of Nazareth? Is he finding work these days? Hmm. Without hesitation, Agaton replied, he is perhaps taking time away from building mansions for the faithful to build a coffin for your empire. You can imagine how Julianus took to uh, such contempt. But anyway, Agaton was right. Centuries have passed. The Roman Empire fell. The pagans sacked Rome. Not too long after that. And of course, when, when you know history, you know the Roman Empire rose and fell. What, what was considered to be the, uh, the, the invincible empire fell. There's only one kingdom that has withstood the test of time. It is the unshakable kingdom. Hebrews tells us the kingdom of God. The Son of God still takes time to build coffins today for, for all those who reject the 
truth. And so, such rebellion by Julianus represents the pathetic attempts of sinful people to revolt against the authority of Christ. But try as they may, mankind cannot overthrow God's eternal kingdom. And so, may we be encouraged as we live in a rebellious cosmic revolt. We're right in the midst of it, aren't we? And some of you might be discouraged today, and I want you to not be too discouraged, because God has not abdicated His throne yet, and never will. He has a kingdom that is invincible. It might look like it's crumbling. It might look like it's already crumbled and fallen apart to you, but it hasn't. God is still accomplishing His purposes, even through sinners. Remember, Yahweh even called King Nebuchadnezzar his servant. They're all his servants. Our prime minister is his servant. The globalists of our world are God's servants. They're accomplishing his purposes. It's all building toward what we see in the book of Revelation. Tribulation's coming. The millennium's coming. The eternal state is coming. And we need to be ready. Until then, we have a mission. We have purpose. We are to be light. We are to be salt. May we really believe that and live like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Psalm chapter 2. Thank you for giving us your spirit and your word for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we look forward to His coming again. May we really believe it. May we really believe that what is happening in this mess, in this chaos, in this rebellion around us is all part of Your glorious plan and purpose. And our Prime Minister and the MPs and the globalists of this world, they, they, they obviously think they're accomplishing their own purposes, but may we not think that way, at least. May we really believe that you are in charge, that you're, you are sovereign and reign supreme over all of your creation. And so may we carry this message. Those of us who believe these commands we've seen here, that you really are Yahweh and you, you are, are, are the one who reigns supreme, and it's just insanity to rage and plot against you. It's in vain. So may we carry a glorious message of good news of the gospel that Jesus has dealt with our greatest problem. And He can save us from you. You are our only hope. There is judgment coming, if it hasn't already. Now is the day of salvation. One day you're going to release some horrible judgments on this world, and may we be prepared. May we tell of the good news so people don't have to spend eternity in the fire. Thank you for being a God, such a big, awesome, powerful God like this, and giving us such encouragement and comfort. Because this world is a difficult place to live in. And we don't understand all of your purposes and what's going on. And so we... we we, we need to understand some things. We need to know some truth here that will bring comfort and help guide us. And so may you do that in our hearts, we pray.
Jesus' name.